Welcome to Rad People I Know. This is a podcast about how extraordinary people are every day. Life is not just about what you do, but who you are in what you do. All of us know a whole bunch of rad people. These are some of mine. I hope you enjoy their stories. So welcome back, everyone, again to another episode of Rad People I Know. So uh, I'm speaking again this week to Phaedra Fisher, author of Vodka Diplomacy. Um, we had an extensive discussion last week about you know, how she found herself in Russia at the very perfect time when the Soviet Union collapsed and the first wave of consultants um, trying to teach them how to be good capitalists and what that experience entailed. Um, and so this episode, I really wanted to focus on, you know, what are the things that were going on outside of the office? Um, some of the personal things, you know, making friends, because I think that tells a different story as well. Um, so I want to talk about some of that. So I'll jump straight in. And um, pretty early on in the book, you talk about going to an NFL game. Um, so I want you to talk a bit about that event and why why do you think the Russians adopted this very American sport? Um, And I wanted to know if that was the early days of NFL because extensive internet research uh, led me to see that uh, it remains a popular sport to this day, even more popular than hockey, which actually surprised me. So um, just tell us a little bit about that experience and, and where they were at that point with NFL, et cetera. So I call it American football rather than NFL, but I think everyone gets the same principle because it's... Yeah, not soccer for all of the Europeans. Exactly. (laughs) American football. Um, And until you you said that, I had no idea that it's really still a thing over in Russia. I I had absolutely no idea. Um, But the the way we came across... Whenever we first all arrived, and we meaning like the American consultants, that in the very early days, we we're all living in a hotel while we we're trying to find um, apartments and things like that. So we're all living in the hotel. And we're all trying to figure out like, what can we do on the weekends? That's interesting. And as we're starting to explore Moscow, and the, the main source of information was um, the expat newspaper called the Moscow Times, that just sort of laid out, you know, it was like the events calendar and, and everything else. And we, we saw that there was this football game, uh, American football game of uh, Moscow Mustangs versus the Kiev Destroyers. And so, <laughs> sure, think about that today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that was literally, that, that's, that's literally what the two football teams' names were. Um, and it was held in the Dynamo Sports Stadium, which is you know, like your typical, uh, 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 your typical sort of like, very small end. It, it'll be sort of like what would be be a typical like almost a high end high school stadium. Yeah, it's not, okay. not even a college stadium. It was just like a really, and of course it was totally dilapidated as well. So it's just yes. it's sort of, so sort of think about a high school stadium, um, and with like your bleachers and and various things falling apart and whatnot. And then was it uh, outdoor or indoor? Outdoors, outdoors. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. This is outdoors. And it was, yes, it's, it's like football outdoors, yeah. So then, um, uh, and it was, I would say that the vast majority of the people in the stands were friends and family of the fan, of the of the players. Yeah, like there really, there were, there were just a couple of random people like us who just showed up to, to view it. So your statement earlier that it's hugely popular now, I find to be, I need to go back and look that up because like <laughs> clearly at that time, um, 
there was there was no one except for the friends and family and a couple of random people in in this in the stands. So it must have been early days, yeah. Yes, it was, it was definitely early days. And and then also, I mean, like, what made the whole experience so hilarious was that even the players didn't really know the rules very well, and, and it was just it was just sort of like the Three Stooges play football. You know, it was I mean, they were having a great time, but they just uh, like the the announcer had to keep on coming on to the um, uh, onto the loudspeaker with just like. No, that was a ten-yard penalty, not a five-yard penalty. <laughs> <laughs> Explaining what should be going on, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and just like telling him what's going on, and and then the the fans and family and the uh, were like. You could see that they're really hesitant for when to cheer. Like they weren't quite sure. Like, was that a good thing that just happened? Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my son just got buried. It's, it's a, it's a, yeah. a pile of bodies. Was that good? Yeah, exactly. Was that a good thing, you know. So, and of um, course, there was vodka by oh, that, that on was, both the players and the fans. So yeah, that was like the that was like the halftime entertainment was. You know, they break for halftime. And the players just climbed up into the stands and they had their like doting mothers giving them like snacks and, and vodka. And <laughs> it just, it was like completely chaotic. I mean, stuff that, that again, like you wouldn't even have this in a high school football game in the U S no. you don't have the players just like, okay, we're taking halftime break and they climb into the stands and have snacks with their friends and family. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. And did the quality of the play deteriorate after the halftime due to the vodka well, I think these were seasoned vodka drinkers, so I don't. So, I don't no effect. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think it really impacted anything. But it was. But again, it's, it was like, and you're right. This was on the very early days in our, my time in Moscow, and it it just really t- totally set the tone for everything. Of you know, yes, everything. Yeah, everything's a bit different than the U. Than you, I mean, a lot different. Where yeah, you're even watching a football game. American football game, and it's it's completely unrecognizable. <laughs> yeah, like you know, airports and other things that you should recognize. That you're like, I don't understand. Yeah. How this so, is someone told me this is a football game, but <laughs> and um, so, do you think that like they were adopting it as part of the new you know relationship? Were they? Was it a show at first? Like, why would they even? Yeah. Yeah, we were up. completely speculating. I mean, like the the total speculation was that um, it, American football players are paid a lot of money, you know, <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, and, yes. and it, it's, as are American hockey players and American basketball players and whatnot. And and I think that I think that there are some people who are just like you know maybe maybe we can get a job, <laughs> maybe we can. And, and who knows? And, and it's it's sort of like the the kids in the inner city playing basketball with the big dream to play in the NBA. And just, and you know, most of them won't make it, but then one person from their neighborhood makes it. And it's like, yeah. like, wow. Yeah. Like the, we, we, go, go get them. <laughs> yeah. So. Actually that makes, yeah, that does make a lot of sense. And okay. uh, when I was doing my extensive internet research on um, whether it was still a thing today, um, you know, of course, the next topics are, you know, who are some of the Russian NFL players? And of course, you know, there there are some. So obviously, that uh, tactic did work for a few Sergeys and uh, mm-hmm. Vladimirs in, mm-hmm. in time. So not to be namist, if I can say <laughs> that, but, you know, <laughs> awesome. Um, so describe Ramon, Russian style. So I want you to first, it's a French word. 
So yes. let's talk about what it really means and then what does it actually mean in Russian. Exactly. And, and this is just, of course, a little trip down um, Russian history lane in that you know, Russia has a long um, history you know, like um, of influence with Russia, of influence with France. You know, so it's terms like, like bistro in the U.S., um, whenever you talk about bistro, that's the Russian word for quick. It's and it's and it sort of was was adopted in France from the Russians showing up uh, um, and saying quickly, quickly to get to get the food, and so it's a bistro. Yeah. So, <laughs> then on the flip side, Vermont was taken on on the, by Russians as a French word, and it means to repair or to renovate. Mm-hmm. And but the the term in the in English of repair or renovate, you sort of think about a finite project. <laughs> you, know, you think about a, fi- a finite project that has a beginning and an end and a plan. With goals. With yeah, goals. A plan. yeah, a plan. Exactly. You got a plan yeah. and you know what you're trying to achieve. Vermont in the Russian term, um, it's people talk about it as a phase of your life. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> <laughs> Where, and this is again due to just the fact that it was just completely chaotic to try and get anything sourced or any materials or any services. So you never quite knew if you're going to get wallpaper or where you'd find wallpaper. You never quite knew how you'd get electrical work done. I mean, you just you just had no idea. And and yeah, I was very fortunate again because I was an American with with money, um, but the Russian. I mean, mind you, I was still in my 20s, so it's not, it's not like I was you know, dripping cash, but I, but I was dripping cash compared to the normal Russians. Yeah. So, yeah. so, um, so as a result, like, like I knew, um, I met Russians who essentially they decided to self-study how to do electrical wiring because <laughs> like, <laughs> because like there is no other way for them to actually get, you know, like electrical stuff in their house. So it's like, this isn't a quick, like, let's, let's like look up in the yellow pages, find electrical guy to come and, and do it. Um, and so everything, everything was just a little, just a lot more chaotic than, than usual um, or than you'd consider in the U.S. And then, um, uh, uh, and I was very fortunate in that the guy who helped me find my apartment also you know, was like a contractor for renovations. And so uh, I, had a, I had a lead contractor at least. And he was, and he would, to his eternal credit, he, and he wasn't Russian, he wasn't American. I never really knew, learned what his nationality was. My, my guess, and this is entirely a guess, but some sort of North African, you know, or Middle Eastern origin. Right. But this is just, just a guess. But anyway, his, his Russian was very good, but he clearly was not a native speaker. His English was very good, but he's clearly not a native speaker. But, um, but he was, he had like the Western mindset of you know, client centric. I'm going to, we're going to actually, you know, we're going to do this. But he also was operating on like the local realities of, anything can happen. <laughs> in a yeah. sense. And so, um, and so what happened um, and the apartment that I took in Moscow, um, actually we didn't even talk about the apartment hunting, uh, but, but at that time um, really the, the state of the housing was in, let me just, 
put in your mind like your worst images of public housing decay of uh, mm-hmm. just just you know, rat infested I, I don't think that there was much drugs at the time i think there's drugs now but but you remove the drugs um, from the public housing, but you've got the rats and you've got the decay and you have, um, it, you've just got things that are visibly falling apart mm-hmm. uh, and the cockroaches. And you know, it just, it was just, it, it just was. It, so when I was looking at the apartments, I'm like, they weren't, they just were not places that I could actually come home from a hard day at work and say, let's relax. <laughs> and, and it was definitely a, um, how do you put it? We all, when, and we talked about this earlier, like whenever you're traveling, you want to experience the local scene. Uh, but there's a point where you're just like, I just can't do this. You know, like I, I yeah. just, I, I couldn't truly live like a local. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it, because the true, truly living like a local would have been meant like 11 people in a two bedroom apartment, you know, yeah. like, on top of each other. And, and yeah, I have to confess, I am American enough to want my own place and to want it clean. <laughs> yeah. Want, want a fridge that works and you know, things like that. So, so, um, uh, 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 Michael helped me find this apartment that was in dreadful need of work, but it was a perfect location. Um, and so we, he, he agreed to help me with the, renovation and we, we worked out a deal with the landlord that um th- that would you know help to finance the renovations um so we did that and so the first thing that michael did and it might just as a total gut and renovate yeah it was except for the ki- we left the kitchen intact um but that was about it uh, and but in the rest of the house the f- everything needed to be done pretty much <laughs> he um the first thing that michael did was he um sanded and polished the floors and so you're like okay I, I'm not really an expert on home renovations but it's not usually the last thing you do because like every all the other demo work that's going to happen it's going to destroy the floors <laughs> and, yeah and he said um he said I was able to get a hold of the I was able to get the sander the floor people here so I got them here <laughs> it's just like because you never <laughs> You never quite know when you'll be able to get them again. Yeah, you don't have this logical timeline that we take a bit, uh, you know, take for granted mm-hmm. that like, oh, these are all the things I'm going to do in this order, and I just know that like that's how it's going to pan out, right? Yeah. 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 Oh so, my gosh. Yeah. So, the, so the floors were nicely done. Then um, we went off and. Uh, then he had like every day over lunch, he was essentially taking me off to like random places throughout Moscow to like pick out tiles and like, look at, um, look at a refrigerator or things like that. And um, sort of imagine we all have been in home Depot, or at least like the the Americans on the call have been to home Depot or some other Australia. It's Bunnings. Bunnings. Yeah. Giant, ginormous. um, Either 10 in New Zealand. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, For those (laughs) of our international friends. Uh, But anyway, so the the ginormous, if you, if you need to renovate your house, you're likely going to find what you need there. (laughs) You know, so you you will, you'll go there and find it. Um, Imagine if all you have available are things smaller than a 7-Eleven um, and, and everything. So it's just like a tiny, tiny corner convenience store with like 
there's three choices of tile. You have you know, like your orange and brown, your your green and brown, and your gray. And so you're like, I'll go with the gray. You know, I just, I, <laughs> but it's it was like that's that sort of thing where um, you had to. And my, I'm so glad that I was working with Michael because he he just knew where that one convenience store was that was way over here. That was mm-hmm. the one place that had the three different. And there were choices of tiles. You know, it's like, but um, but it was it was that sort of approach to to be able to renovate your house. Um, and so, so I picked out my nice gray tiles and then I hadn't heard from, um, yeah, and then the, the, this guy, um, Igor w- w- was doing demo in the old bathroom. Again, the, the old bathroom was just, you know, I wish I had photos of it, but it was, it was one of these things where like, if you'd walked, if you walked into a hotel room and saw this bathroom, you just like turn around and leave and go like, I need to, I need to find another place. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, and, and I'm, and you and I have both done some extensive travel. Like I've got a lot of tolerance for, for oh, yeah. the, a lot of things. Yeah. But, but in any case, so Igor was working on the demo of the bathroom. Um, and then I hadn't heard from them for a while. And, you know, I'd, we'd gone and picked out a bathtub and we'd picked out, you know, a new toilet and, you know, all the things that go in a bathroom. Um, and then I, I just hadn't heard from them. So I go back to the, and I'm living in my hotel room, at, mind you, at this point. I'm trying to get out of the hotel into a real apartment. And I hadn't heard from them. So I go over to the apartment, go in, and um, it, there was like, the nice tile that I was picked out was all over the place in the, it like broken all over the place. The, <gasps> the bathroom looked like a bomb went off in it and there was, the ceiling was boarded up. And I'm like, I have no idea what just happened here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just looks like this crime scene with this question mark of like something happened here and I have no idea what it is. Um, so I, um, yeah, I reached Michael. I'm just like, what happened? He said, the apartment above me, yeah, on the h- higher floor, their bathtub crashed through the floor into my <laughs> my bedroom. And I'm glad, like, I wasn't living there at the time because, like, this this would have been even worse. But um, but somehow, the, like, the ceiling collapsed and their bathtub crashed into my bath bathroom, demolished everything that yeah, had happened. I I don't know, like, if the person like I don't know if there's a person in the bathtub at the time <laughs> I mean it's like the whole thing is just too bizarre but then um uh Michael's Michael's like Igor's going to go upstairs and collect from collect money from them um to do repairs because clearly it was their fault and again this is the sorts of things that you know, in the U.S. if something like that happened um You'd contact your homeowner's insurance and say, yeah, and you'd have a nice conversation with the upstairs neighbor who clearly they did not intend their bathtub to go through this through the floor. I mean, like right. no one really, at least most normal people don't intend that. And you and your neighbor hopefully are in good enough terms to like discuss, like, let's contact the our relative yeah, home insurance companies and sort this out. Nothing like that existed in Russia. So so therefore it was just like, okay. Um I guess my Igor is bigger than your Igor, so <laughs> <laughs> he's going to go up and ask for the money. <laughs> and, um, oh. yeah. So this is this is essentially what goes on with Vermont, you know, like yeah. just completely chaotic. Um, and eventually, I did move in, which is hard to believe after all that that I actually did move in. It was it was a great apartment. Um, 
but yeah, it's it, you just it, things don't really operate the way that they do. In, in the it's state. just a, a state <laughs> of being. It's, yes. it's, yeah. <laughs> One thing I want to talk about, um, and because this isn't on the list to talk about, but there's a story you told me many years ago, and I've never forgotten it um, because, uh, and it is about that thing of choice. And I know even for myself, right? I lived in New Zealand and Australia for over 25 years. And, you know, that's a Western country, they have choice, right? And I remember sometimes, though, like, I, I remember when I was relocated to San Francisco, when I met you, I was I was there on an indefinite amount of period, I stayed for 18 months. But I remember my first grocery shop when I got back, and I went into the local Safeway. And there was so much choice that it was traumatizing for me. Oh, yeah. And I came from somewhere with choice, right? Yeah. And where like there would be floor to ceiling popcorn and I'm like, and so I, it took me, my first shop took me four hours cause I had to like read everything. And when I relayed that story to you, you told me the story of coming back from Russia and trying to buy cereal yes. and how you were in this aisle and there were two, you know, American sort of young women who literally were in the aisle for a nanosecond basically in disgust with, oh, they don't have my cereal here. This place is crap. And the whole place has like fucking. It was a whole aisle of cereal. I was, and you're exactly right. I was completely paralyzed in the cereal aisle. I was reading every single box because I'm like, I don't, I don't actually don't know how to make a decision here. <laughs> and, I and know. The- these girls are just like, they don't have my favorite Choco Bickies or whatever it was. <laughs> it's like, and just flounced away, disgusted with uh, the lack of, you know, <laughs> and yeah. I've always found that to be um, in, in a way, it's so humbling, but also in a way, you know, it had me questioning, like, do we really need all of that choice that we have, you know, um, <laughs> And I, I don't want to like disparage any, you know, because we're built on the premise of like, you know, there's there's enough room for everyone. You can, you know, enough room for all the brands and all that stuff. But I think, um, you know, it's, again, one of those things that we take for granted. And and again, I, I came from, you know, nowhere near like a Russian society where there was no mm-hmm. choice. Right. I only maybe had five choices instead of, you know, 33. And it was it was so uh, it, it was really it was so paralyzing for me as well. But like, I can imagine in your case, you know, the orange and brown or the green, green and brown or the gray. It's like, well, obviously gray. Like, you know, you can't ask for, can I have purple tiles with unicorns on them? Because that's just not going to happen. <laughs> no, you're exactly right. And anyway, yeah. it gets back to like a, a, an ongoing theme that we have here is people need to travel. You need to experience different societies. Yeah. And it's, yeah. You, you need you need to see how other people live. Um, yeah, because you're viewing it all from your own lens and your own experience, yeah. which is very unique and very different. And you're placing your own judgments and determinations on people and situations without even really knowing. There yeah, and, and I know that, I, and I'm going to go off uh, off um, uh, track for a moment, uh, but. I know this is supposed to be about Russia, but I just need to throw in one story about a trip to Nepal I did with my sister many years ago. So. Um, uh, my sister and I are trekking around Annapurna Circuit, and this was in the early '90s. I, I think it's like actually it's ninety, actually late '90s, '97. I think is when we did it. We've, we were trekking the Annapurna Circuit. This mm-hmm. is you know, for those who've done Annapurna. This is before there was a road. Yeah, this is this is truly trekking, and these villages 
are provisioned entirely by what can come in by donkey. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. no, it's not a, there's, there's no cars or anything. It's just what's provisioned. And so, and they're, they're living very simple lives. And so the kids here, you know, they, they barely have electricity. If, if they, I mean, a lot of them don't have electricity or, or they have electricity for like a couple hours a day. Um, and it's a very, you know, very rural life. And yeah, not to, not to like over glamorize it, but my, my sister and I would, our favorite thing to do yeah, after we're trekking for the day was to just like people watch yeah, and just, just to see like, yeah, what are people doing in this town? Yeah. What yeah. Are people, because that's why you're there. Yeah. That's why you're there. Okay. And like, let's, yeah. let's people watch. Let's just see what people are doing. And so one day she and I are just you know, sitting on the, the front porch of the place that we're um, where we were for the night and we heard these kids like happy screaming, you know how like there's a bunch of a gang of kids that are just happy screaming and, and we can't see them yet. Um, and they're running along um, and they were all like riding sticks, like as if they were pretend horses and like mm-hmm. doing this, this pretend horse race just with sticks and like, going, yeah, yeah. Like they're whipping their little horses and just, and just galloping along. They're galloping like horses. I'm from Montana. We did that. Yeah. Okay, you yeah. like, these kids are just having a great day. Yeah. Playing with sticks. Yeah, playing with sticks. Yeah. Like they don't have Game Boys, they don't have whatevers. And they're having a great time. And and yeah. this this is the thing I just think this is again A why you travel and B like people just really need to get a grip that you know, you don't need the latest iPhone. 27 or whatever we're up to, you know, to, to well, and also I think it, it fundamentally comes from also, um, you know, in these certain circumstances, you need to use your imagination, which is a creative muscle. Mm-hmm. And it is, uh, it's, it's the same creative muscle. That's a problem solving thing. Yeah. It's a creative muscle that allows you to envisage something else for yourself and go out and do it. And it starts with imagination in childhood. Right. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, that's another thing that we're severely lacking in. Um, you know, it comes down to even things as simple as, um, you know, my mom was an English teacher. And when they brought in Common Core, um, they removed fiction from the reading list. And she said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it. She said, fiction is what contributes to our imagination and creativity. Yeah. And so I feel like there's been a systematic removal of these critical things, which are critical for surviving life. You know, it's not, you know, I'm sure a lot of people would be like, why would I want to pretend to stick as a horse? You know, (laughs) it's, it's not about that thing. It's about fostering your imagination and creativity, which then helps you create and live a better life for yourself because it contributes to all these other things. And I think it's severely lacking in our very civilized society. So there we go. I feel like I'm preaching a bit here, but I don't care. I don't care. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. It's it, there's worse things than preaching that people need to be more creative. <laughs> That's right. Read your fiction, people. <laughs> All right. Um, let's move on. What was nightclubbing like in Russia? Uh, you know, some of the risks, some of the hits and misses, um, some of the American male behavior. Like I just, I think uh, early on you tell a story about. You know, basically, yes. if you managed to get in and someone got left behind, like you didn't worry about them. Like yes. you, just, you were in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you're you're naming a couple of things here. Remind you, like I'm in my at this point, I'm in my mid twenties, and you know, doing things that normal twenty something year olds do, which is go off to the clubs at night. Yeah, and so and and again, oh, there were 
there were very few choices at this point, or at least very mm-hmm. few choices that the Americans were aware of. And then we started to become aware of other ones that were more like more interesting. And I'll get into that in a bit. Uh, but the the first thing is the clubs only opened at midnight. You know, like there was mm-hmm. no, and mind you, I'm no longer in doing all this. Um, but I I just can't even imagine going to the clubs at midnight. But the, <laughs> but, the but really, like the cool people would only show up at two or three. Yeah, you know, so so right. like you're really just yeah you know, you're just sort of an idiot for showing up at midnight. Um, of course. But then uh, then the thing is the first the way to get into the clubs. Uh, was what was called the face test. And the face test was there was a bouncer at the door that just determined, are you good looking enough and well dressed enough to get in the in? And, mm-hmm. and of course, the and they always would let in more women than men because they wanted to have the ratios sort of like in the guy's favor. And so mm-hmm. the guys were the more likely to be thrown out. And then also if the guys didn't come with a sufficient you know, posse of women, then they're almost definitely going to be. (laughs) So this was sort of like, uh, it it sort of became um, the way that you go to the clubs is you have to make sure that you've you've got at least equal men and women, or ideally more, more women. Otherwise like the guys aren't going to get in. (laughs) 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 Um, And yeah. And, and, and also, and it was also, it's very arbitrary, you know, it just is very, I'm sure this happens at clubs in the States too. Yeah. 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 I think I'm sure it happens where we're just like the bouncer, just like, don't like the way you look, you're, you can't come in yet. So, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. that was the, that was the first step is to, is to get in. And, and also um, typically the women were not charged to get in, but the men were. Yeah. And it That's was pretty um, typical. Well, that yeah. Can be pretty yeah. yeah, yeah. Just, just because like we, we want the odds to be in the guy's favor that they're going to get lucky tonight. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And so, so then that, that was the first thing to get in. And then the, then the second is like the, the male behavior as we've already sort of outlined was pretty much like they just sort of take women for granted yeah and mm-hmm. and it's and the whole idea was um the guys are just like buy a drink and if the girl accept accepted her drink then she's yours yeah and is you know and is yours for the night you know <laughs> and, and when, I, when i mean night i mean not just at the club i mean like extracurricular activities after yeah 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 because <laughs> well, again this came back to the their culture at the time as well their, their culture at the time but also uh, the, the americans american men have something that the Russian women wanted, which is an American passport. And mm. so it's, it was very much just like, how do I get out of Russia? I can get out of Russia by dating an American guy who mm-hmm. can get me out and I can get a green card. And yeah, so it was very much a survival test. I mean, I'm sure there are love matches out there. You know, like there, there always are love matches, mm-hmm. uh, but it was very clear that a lot of Russian women were very much in the mode of, uh, yeah, I'm young. I need to get out of this country. It's a this is this is a scary place. Yeah, for the long term, uh, I've got this American man who's got a lot of money, and he has yeah again relative to the Russians. It's not like we were crazy you know, millionaires. Yeah, but, like, yeah, but relative to the Russians, we had a lot of money, and so I can see the appeal of that. I can see the appeal of just like yeah, we'll go for it. And so then again, this gets into like the guys were then doing things that they probably wouldn't have done in the States <laughs> that, yeah. that, they, that yeah, they were treating the women with a lot less respect with a lot more of just like, they're just able to be discarded after the one night. And that was entertaining. Uh, they were getting into the um, uh, like, there was, there was one guy who just decided that 
uh, he was going to just see, then they started like testing themselves of like how they could up the ante. And one guy was like, I'm just going to date Natasha's and I'm just going to like go into the club and I'm just going to work the room until I find a Natasha. (laughs) And I mean, just because it was, it was just, it was too easy just to take a girl home for the night. My last point on the, on the clubbing in Russia, uh, actually uh, two two more points. Um, One was uh, again, and this gets to something we're talking about later is that violence is everywhere. Yeah. Like violence Mm -hmm. was absolutely everywhere. I was never in a club mercifully that had a violent episode. I had close friends that were, yeah. I mean, like we're talking like shootouts between like rival, like mafia people or whatever, whatever, like I should say they're, they're henchmen. Um, And yeah, it's just like, like what the heck? And so as a result of a result of that happening, and this, this mind you is in, People use the term mafia very loosely. I mean, I would, I would, I would say that the term mafia is probably not correct as much as just like groups of people that are employing their own Igors to get what they want. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's, yeah. it's sort of like, like they're like my my Igor is bigger than your Igor, and you know, yeah. we're going to we are going to like get what we want yet using brute force um, and brute threatening people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, I mean that's that's what my references are in this. Yeah. In this case. Yeah. So uh, and yes, I know that there's. I mean, this is a much more complex situation, but that, but I'm just sort of clarifying what I'm talking about. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, but these people, the, the guys who are involved in that sort of a scene, are very much just like your stereotypical guys who are just uh, honestly like too insecure to to you know, do anything other than looking totally macho. Um, and so we, as a result, discovered gay nightclubs. <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. Because like we, we, and when we discovered, we meaning you know, like the Americans, when we discovered the gay nightclubs, it was like, oh my God, this is a mafia free zone. Yeah. Because, because they, they just would not, like, this is not their scene. <laughs> yeah. Nice. And it was, it was just fantastic. And, and so that, and, so that was that's how I started going to gay clubs was was like it's a mafia free zone. It was great music, it was great dancing, it's good drinks, people are happy, you know. So it was yeah. it was a real it was a just an eye-opening experience on many, many, many levels. That's awesome. Yeah, but again, it's curious. Yeah, there's more out there. Curious, that's right. Um Excellent. So tell us about your nuclear physicist housekeeper. <laughs> yeah. And I can't believe it. You're using, I mean, some people will be astonished that you're saying that in one sentence, but um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I literally did have a housekeeper who was a trained nuclear physicist who until like um, very recently had been working as a nuclear physicist. And as I noted before, the, the economy was a state of complete collapse and so, therefore, a lot of people were not being paid, and the local wages were very, very low. To even like, as I noted before, like the lo- the average wage of people was around a hundred dollars a month. Um, it, it was it was not much, and you know, I can't really dial back to the '90s of what the average American wage was at the time. But it was not more than a hundred dollars. It was not a hundred. I was 100. working in the '90s. I remember. <laughs> yeah, it was not a hundred dollars a month. I mean, in, yeah. and it was. And granted, like the prices were very low there, but it, but you were you were really struggling. Like my apartment, 
just just to sort of put things in context, I had a I had a lavish apartment by by Russian standards that was um, a two bedroom, one bath for I'm I, it was eighteen hundred dollars a month. So uh, and, and that's that's with the renovations amortized into it. So it it, it was. Like that's inclusive of amortizing the, re- the renovations. So, right. so just sort of think about the price difference there. Of like that, that was my my rent for like this is like a, at that time a top end apartment in, in Moscow. So, wow. so anyway, this is all a preface of my nuclear physicist housekeeper who, who is <laughs> not being paid at all. Yeah, like by her current employer, and in the event that she would be paid again. Um, was not going to be earning very much at all. And so through somehow she tapped into the American expat network. And I honestly have no idea how someone connected with her originally. But just one of my expat friends said, you need to meet Valia. She's the best housekeeper ever. Um, and, And so I met her and she was the best housekeeper ever. <laughs> <laughs> so I paid her literally $20 a week for her to come in twice to my house each. So essentially $10 a visit. Um, and then you pick up sort of like, you'd start doing the math and realizing like, okay, if she's got, you, know, uh, uh, you can start doing the math very quickly. And she was earning like easily a thousand dollars a month, you know, of cash. Which would have been like yeah. amazing. Yeah. Uh, just like if she's working a couple of different, you know, a couple of different houses and whatnot. But then the, the, the um, and I was asking her, like, you're you're a nuclear physicist. How are you possibly happy being a housekeeper? Mm-hmm. And she was she was ecstatic being a housekeeper. And and it goes back to some of the things we're talking about before. Is that like in her work life, she had a pretty miserable work life. It was like a command and control work life. She was not treated with respect in the workplace, even though she was a, literally a nuclear physicist. Um, it was a command and control sort of area. She could not use her own creativity. She couldn't use her own thinking. Um, and she was a single mom. Um, and so, and for a very young child. And so. She said, "Like, look, look at my quality of life as a housekeeper. I can, I can choose my own clients. I'm in control of my own destiny. Um, I'm, I'm working. I can bring my daughter to work. Yeah, you know, like she had a three year old that would just come to the house and play with my cat. Yeah, you know, like I'd be off at work, and so like it worked out well for everybody. Like she's got That's a awesome. three year old daughter playing with my cat while she's cleaning my house, and she was, it was, just, it was phenomenal. And again, this gets back to like the the totally different types of personality sets out there." Where you know, like you and I go, go into this saying, oh, my God, how depressing a, a nuclear physicist who's reduced to working as a housekeeper. But she saw it from the reverse. So she's like, this is an amazing opportunity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm getting paid in U.S. dollars, which, mind you, in a hyperinflationary, it was a hyperinflationary term, yeah. period of time. So, so she's got it really good compared to her colleagues who are still working off in the nuclear physicist place. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Let's move on. Um, so I think the food in Russia, this is an interesting topic. Uh, you talk about eating radioactive vegetables. And then um, at the same time, you were able at one stage to cook a very un- authentic Thanksgiving dinner. And you had the um, very coveted fresh bread connection. So how did that all happen? <laughs> all righty. So food. Um, yes. And as we've discussed before, you go to another country and it's not all about American food. It's, it's no. about, it's about what's going on locally and, mm-hmm. and just exploring it and, and such, but at the same time um, you need to eat, you know, like there's, there's really a lot um, going on here. So first of all, in the, I was fortunate enough to be in Russia 
after the Soviet Union. Um, and I'm sure that people have read or heard about what life was like during the Soviet Union, where the food situation was dire, was uh, absolutely dire. Uh, and people need to remember that there was days where there's truly long lines to, out of stores in order to just get one piece of bread. And it, it, it was very real. So I'll, I'll just take you through like what the, what was going on in some of the traditional stores in Russia and what was going on in some of the Western stores and what was going on at some of the markets and then how we managed to do a Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> so <laughs> so the, the Russian stores operate very different and I'm sure it's changed by now but 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 when I was there they were still operating under the standard Soviet system which is and I swear I'm not making this up um, and I may not get the details exactly right I'm sure someone will correct me uh, but you go into the store and there there's no self-service picking up stuff like you do at Safeway in the in the US it's it's everything's behind the counter and so you have to decide what you want uh, you have to pay for it first, and then you, and so you wait in one line to pay for everything first, and then you go in another line and hand them the receipt uh, to get what you want. Uh, and so th this involves knowing how much it's going to cost before you actually buy it. <laughs> so uh, it, because you, like essentially you're just you're not you're not saying I want um, a piece of bread and I want some cheese and I want you know some pasta. You are saying I, I need to pay you. Know, uh, 15 rubles or you know, whatever much and so you get a receipt for 15 rubles and then you go and try and buy the buy the goods for it. So it, was, it was a crazy system because um, what a, happens then given that there's two lines so you go up first and you decide what you want so you see let's let's say you see you know a particular cut of meat that you like mm -hmm. and it's that particular one and then you would go and pay for it it's so like would meat be done by the weight so you pay for the weight and then if you get back and someone else Gone. would take yeah. it that I, yeah, I honestly don't know what would happen in that circumstance because, uh, yeah, and again, my, my memory is a bit fragile about going through the system. So hopefully you'll get some comments on your podcast with people sort of enlightening us to what would actually happen <laughs> <laughs> there. But, um, but yeah, it was the, the main point is it was completely chaotic and, and it was, and there was very little to choose from. Yeah, it was mm -hmm. pretty much just like, you're excited that there's a block of cheese. So I don't even care what type of cheese it is. Like, I'm just excited That's that there's fine. cheese. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, so that was a way that the Russian stores operated. Was uh, was that? And so there was, so that was a the, that was a Russian stores. Meanwhile, in the Western stores, like the stores that were really more catering to the to the Americans and the expats and whatnot, uh, you'd pretty much, um, you know, they were a lot smaller than Safeway. I mean, they, these 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 were super small, but they were extortionary prices, you know, just, mm -hmm. just truly extortionary price. And I get it. You know, like I'm, I'm very much a capitalist in that, you know, it, the way that you actually you know, provide things, there's cost to it. And it was not easy to get, you know, all these Western goods or, or to get the supply chains going to actually get all this stuff into the country. Um, so I get it. Uh, but it, it was pretty much like, out of the price range of even us well-paid Americans, you know, like so, like you'd have to be an extremely well-paid American you know, to just to be like living off of the American of the Western grocery stores. And so, mm -hmm. at that point, obviously, that was what was happening. But were there early, uh, you know, we we all know about the Russian billionaires and that they started appearing, you know, mm -hmm. pretty much during this period. Were they? Uh, was it that early on that even they would be clientele? No, they, they would. Oh, and that's that's something we haven't even talked about. It's like the like the Russian gazillionaires, um, and it, 
I never knew any of them personally, but you could see these people with way too much money out in public. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, these Russians would pride themselves on how much money they spent. Yeah, mm-hmm. So essentially they would, they would be bragging to people about, I spent so much at this store and the, the big joke, actually, this is this is the biggest joke um, at the time, which is uh, two two Russians run into each other on the streets of Paris, and they're just like sort of comparing notes with each other. And yeah, Russian one um, is showing this nice silk tie that he just bought and says, "Oh, I I've just paid yeah a hundred euros for it at at this store." And the other guy says, "You're an idiot. You could have paid two hundred euros at this store." <laughs> 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 I mean, it's it's like they were comparing notes of like like how much money can you spend, and so yeah. which is again it sort of goes against a lot of like the uh, you know, normal people mentality. <laughs> but but, I, but I, I feel like it's still very much alive today. Oh, your yacht was only one hundred and fifty million. Exactly. My uh, yacht is yeah yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Like you're an idiot. You only spent that much. I could I I spent three times that much. You know, and I so, spent just yeah. that much uh, as a dinghy for my main yacht. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so, um, yeah, so, so that's what that's what leads to the question about the radioactive vegetables because uh, because like okay you're not really getting what you need in the Russian stores and those are chaotic um, you're not and, it's, and yes there is stuff in the Western stores but like I'm trying to save some money while I'm working a very good job so I'm, I was really trying to like you know, live on a budget mm-hmm. and so that's what drove me to the open air markets um, and the open air markets were typically set up at the train stations. Uh, because what what was um, what was happening is that people, uh, a lot of Russians have a dacha off in the suburbs uh, or way out in the country, you know, like their little country place, and, and these are not fancy like these are not fancy places. They're typically a plot of land. Um, and maybe a shack or something that you can, you know, like sleep mm-hmm. in. This is, this is not like, oh, my second home out in the country that, that, yeah. that I just think of. Um, so there, but the main point about them, and this is especially true to the, the Soviet era, was that this was a great source of growing your own veggies and having your own source of food that was a little bit reliable. Yeah. And, and then any surplus, the people would sell at the train stations. Mm-hmm. So the quality was generally spectacular. I mean, it was just like, you're, I mean, just think about, you know, your, uh, someone's home garden tomatoes just sort of, th- you know, like picked uh, this morning and now they're on the table here. So it's, it's really good quality stuff. Um, and the train station, one of the train stations that was closest to me was the Kievska train station. And, and for those that don't know Moscow, um, there, Moscow is surrounded by a ring ring of roads as well as the train stations are all placed almost like points on a clock around around the ring um, and each one of them is named for the the major connecting city so you got the mm-hmm. so you got the the Leningradskaya yeah, it connects to St. Petersburg yeah, because then that's at the north side you've got the Kievskaya that points off towards Kiev yeah, and so on um, and so the Kievskaya is one closest to me and I just loved all the veggies there and then someone pointed out like you do realize that these are radioactive vegetables. Yeah, they're, they're noble. Yeah, coming <laughs> from yeah, like up the train line that ends in Kiev. Yeah. 
That's hilarious. You're like, mm, these giant like, tomatoes are amazing. <laughs> yeah, you may ask, how do I know that they're radioactive tomatoes? So, and the way I know that they're radioactive tomatoes is that the U.S. consulate or U.S. embassy gave their employees Geiger counters that they could use whenever they went grocery shopping. Oh, so no they, way. I'm actually making, I'm totally serious about this. They take the Geiger counters to the grocery stores and to like these open markets and just go, like, nope. Oh my God. And so, yeah, I stopped shopping at the Kievskaya station after that, but I did go to some other stations that were reportedly less radioactive. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. Thankfully, it doesn't appear like, you have been adversely affected uh, by this later in life. Let's let's hope that doesn't happen. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and so now, now the question is: Okay, how? Uh, yeah, like with that as a context, how do you pull together a Thanksgiving dinner? Um, and the answer is um, U.S. Embassy actually has these wonder this wonderful service, and I say wonderful service in air quotes um, of a diplomatic pouch, and the diplomatic pouch uh, is. Yeah, it's not a pouch like you think. It's sort of like a free, get out of jail free card for anything that the embassy wants to bring into the country. Um, so there, it, it sort of bypasses all customs. It bypasses all you know other types of controls. Yeah. Um, and so I knew I had a friend that worked at the embassy who said we're taking orders for butterball turkeys. <laughs> 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 like what the heck? <laughs> you know? That's awesome. So yeah, we we ordered ourselves a, a real American butterball turkey, and with the ingenuity and collaborative of like all the you know, my American, and we had a bunch of bunch of Russians there, a bunch of Americans, um, but we're just like, okay, we're going to figure this out. And it, it, as you can imagine, like there was a lot of resourcefulness of okay, how are we going to do some stuffing? How are we going to do some cranberry sauce? And you know, and people were just like filing reports about what they found. <laughs> and, yeah. It was found some- weeks in the making. It wasn't just a casual, like you basically, I'm assuming you had to have some kind of project plan and checklist <laughs> and like, yeah. <laughs> yeah it was, but it was, it was fun. And also I have to say that it was one of the most genuine Thanksgiving dinners I've ever had where mm-hmm. everyone's like, we are so grateful. We are just so grateful of uh, look at look at this plentiful table. Look at uh, look at the fact that we we come from very privileged lives. I mean, it was it was like the whole spirit of Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, I did. Um, I'm sure I've told you this before, but for all of the years I was in New Zealand and Australia, I always did a Thanksgiving dinner. It's not. I mean. This again, Americans, you have to understand that people in other countries do not observe our holidays. Like you just have to really understand that they don't celebrate Fourth of July and they don't celebrate Thanksgiving unless it's their own Thanksgiving, as is in the case in Canada. Because I used to get asked that all the time. Oh, you must be out for Thanksgiving. I'm like, I'm living in New Zealand in Australia. They don't celebrate. (laughs) Anyway, so with that in mind, right, the Thanksgiving holiday is not... Uh, you know, they don't really have the equivalent. And, um, and of course, one of the things that I would do is the tradition of you go around the table and you say what you're thankful for. And New Zealanders bless their hearts. They, um, they sometimes get uncomfortable with those deeply personal questions, <laughs> even amongst friends. And so there'd be a lot of like, you know, umming and eyeing and, you know, it took a while to get into the spirit, but everyone eventually did. But I'll, I remember my first um, one that I held in Australia, and there's slight differences between the two cultures. 
Australians are much more egregarious and, and wear their heart on their sleeves a little bit more than New Zealanders do. Um, not one way is right or wrong, by the way, by any means. But I remember that first dinner. And because of the experience in New Zealand, my partner at the time, you know, when I said we're going to go around and say what we're grateful for, it's a bunch of heavy metal dudes. And he was like, you don't have to, you don't have to say anything. You don't have to be thankful. Like, if you don't want to say anything, don't say anything, basically. <laughs> and then what proceeded to transpire was all of these, you know, heavy metal musicians who all had hearts of gold just said the most incredible things of, that they were thankful for. And of course it gets to Harvey and he's like, I feel like a complete asshole right now. Cause I was <laughs> like, <laughs> but it was like, it was, I found the same thing, right? It was like taken out of the context of America, like what it's actually supposed to be about was much more powerful, you know? Oh, yeah. Was, yeah. Really good. Awesome. Yeah. Good. All right. Um, so we've mentioned a little bit about the very real violence, um, and I think you should tell the story of Stephen and the Russian roulette experience. Yeah. But the main question I want to ask you here is, what was it? Do you think that kept you from becoming a statistic? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I think a big theme is that yes, violence was everywhere, and everyone was either a victim of violence himself or had you know, personal friends that were victims of violence. So this wasn't like an abstract thing that's going on in the news. Um, and so the. I think that the first thing of why I wasn't a statistic, it gets back to, I, I think, the attitude and the resourcefulness and dumb luck. Yeah. <laughs> it, <laughs> yeah. it, it ends, up, ends up being some of the, the dumb luck things. Um, because what was what was going on was, um, at, first it's, at first it's a bit of a shock and a re- it took us a while to really register how much violence there was. Um, and and it, it, as always, I think a lot of people it, just think, oh, it's it's not me. You know, it's, it's, it's not me. And um, like the very first week that we were in Moscow, um, it was literally at the game, at the football game. You know, we we're just reading the Moscow Times during halftime of it. And there was a report about a American consultant who was shot, found shot dead in their own bathtub. And, mm-hmm. and and everyone's just like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, and then, then like further into the story, it's like, oh, and um, mafia connections are suspected, and then everyone's like, oh, that's not me. We're fine. You were fine, and and of course, like you get fast forward to the end of my story, and like, okay, that could have been me in my bathtub. <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. And so it's the violence was everywhere. Um, and yeah, so so then I think I've, I've already talked about how we were hitchhiking everywhere, which you know I think everyone's parents have told them not to hitchhike. Mm-hmm. Um, but in in Moscow, you really did not have a choice. Yeah, there was not. Um, and, well, the, the, there was public transport some of the time, yeah, but things like coming to and from the airport, there's no public transport. And then mm-hmm. if you're going to the clubs late at night, there's no public transport. Yeah. Like it's, it's like, it's, it's just like, am I going to just stay at home and just hide or am I going to go out and participate in life? Yeah. So that's, it gets, it gets back to that. So yes, you, you did have to hitchhike if you're going to go anywhere or you had a driver on call 24 by seven, which the American embassy staff did. Yeah. But, but people like me did not. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so I did not have a driver on call 24 by seven. Um, and so this then gets to uh, uh, whenever you're hitchhiking and the first step about hitchhiking is just sort of you know, like opening the door, not getting in, having a discussion with the driver, trying to ass- assess whether they're a serial killer or not. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, it, and you, know, you, don't, you don't really know, but yeah, you can just sort of <laughs> best guess. Anybody's best guess. guess. Doesn't yeah. seem like a serial killer. Does seem like a serial killer. You know, like whatever. You, you get and then you get in the car with them, and you always get in the front seat. You always got in the front seat with them because, um, like, it's uh, it was just a convention. Like it's it's how to put it. It, it was it was considered to be more. Um, I don't know. If, equitable is the right word for it but it, but it, it just is a convention that you, you got in the front front seat it's just it's like it's just a, it'd be a sign of aggression if you got in the back seat mm. so uh, so you're in the front seat of the car with them and then you're just like okay let's just you know hope we're going to get where, where we're going mm. um so for the most part that worked you know like there <laughs> but yeah. sometimes until it doesn't work and there were so you're referring to steven and um steven uh, was taking a, a car home one night um, and he got, did exactly what I said, you know, like open up the, open up the door, try to assess what was you know, going on, gets in the car. Um, and he's, he, his level of Russian was not great, um, but enough to be able to like have that sort of a conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. but clearly this is not a Russian, you know, like, I mean, clear, I mean, clear, he was clearly a foreigner. He was, mm-hmm. and, so uh, they start to drive off and the guy pulls a gun on him and says, um, I hate Americans. Yeah. You know, like this is, this is one of the ones who just like, we, we don't like you of you know, coming over here and just like you're, you're robbing our country blind. And this is, and again, this, I'm not, th- this is definitely an exception. Like th- this is not yeah. something that happens all the time, but this is just his experience. And he was, and what's even worse is he's actually British, but yeah, you know, being accused of being American. But but in any case, that is worse. That is the worst. <laughs> yeah. But in any case, he was he was kidnapped, taken back to this guy's apartment, tied up um, at a chair with a bunch of his of the Russians' friends, um, and they were playing Russian roulette with him, quite literally. Like they were, they oh the, these Russians were drinking vodka. They had a gun. They were they had they showed him. A, they're putting one round in the chamber. They're spinning the chamber and like shooting it at him. And it's just like, oh my freaking, <laughs> you know. I mean, I just can't even. I just it's it's just so difficult to even imagine. You know, just like what what that night would have been like. And he uh, was beat up as well, right? They'd yeah, they're, they were they were tormenting and torturing him at the same time. Like they mm. were, but. Uh, but um, mercifully, the, the Russians were drinking a lot more than they were playing Russian roulette. Mm-hmm. And eventually they passed out to the point where he was able to, like, get out of there. Um, and uh, he got out of there and essentially, yeah, I, I heard this story. Yeah, I mean, he, this was someone who uh, who was... Um, not on my team, but by the, but on the same employer. So this was an Arthur Anderson employee, and so we just heard about this you know, via the the network. Um, and he essentially, as I'm sure you can expect, um, got on the next plane out of town. He's just like, yeah. he's like, I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> yeah, no, as anyone would. Yeah, it's like it was just just unbelievable. And I mean, fortunately, um, well, yeah, I've got my own situation as well. But I, I only had I had a couple of scary hitchhiking situations. But the the worst the worst of the hitchhiking situations was um, leaving Vanukova Airport, and for those that don't know Vanukova Airport, uh, and I, I honestly don't even know. If, I mean, the, my knowledge is so old. But Vanukova is the airport that served Southern Russia, and at this time it was in the middle of the Chechen War. So so there is a, a lot of very alarming people you know, coming through that airport. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and this was like one of the airports that you did not want to be hitchhiking out of. And I, I no. really, 
And I really um, tried you know, to, you, you always tried to like make sure that you've got an arrangement with your driver and this and that. Um, but yeah, this is pre mobile phones. This is pre like all the things where you just take for granted where you can like call your driver and say, where are you? <laughs> you know. Yeah. Cetera. I think that's the other thing. It's like, it's not, again, you, you're not just on an app on your phone getting a ride or, you know, calling a pre, you know, it's, it's, it's traveling in very difficult circumstances without the tools that make it so easy today. Like I oh, think, exactly. yeah, yeah the, the things that we just take for granted, you know, yeah. are just, we're just not there. So, um, yeah, so essentially I, I arrived from a trip in Southern Russia. I came back to Vinukova um, and I need to get back to my house and I'm looking around and like, my driver's not here. You know, like this is, <laughs> and there's a lot of very alarming people in this, um, in this airport. And then I saw what was clearly an American businessman with his translator. Uh, and the American businessman was like stone drunk. You know, he was, he, he'd clearly been um, at a very successful business meeting. You know, down <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> and, uh, and so the translator and I um, just decided, you know, okay, you know, and their driver hadn't shown up either. So I'm like, hey, can we can we just like go as a team back to Moscow because it's you know safety's number sort of situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we decided, okay, we'll we'll go together. Um, we all uh, and we and again, like as I said, we usually sit, you usually sit in the front seat, but for some reason, the three of us decided. I mean, we were all just very alarmed by by Vinukova. We sat in the back seat, and we also kept all of our luggage on our laps. You know, like we're, we're just like we're not going to put anything in the trunk, yeah, because Good just man. like yeah, just because like if you make a run for it, you know, get your luggage is in the trunk. So we're driving, um, we're getting out of, and and. I left it to the interpreter to find us a driver because he's obviously Russian local and he's speaking Russian you know, mm-hmm. much better than any of us. And um, so he, he found someone who he thought would work. Uh, we pile into the car. Uh, we're As we're pulling out of the airport, the driver slows down and another person gets into the front seat. Oh. You know, and, and it's like, okay, that is not a good sign. <laughs> like that is not a good sign. And and so the car is starting to speed, speed up and we're just like, stop, stop. And he, he was speeding up. And at this point, yeah, like the interpreter and I are looking at each other, like, get out now. And so, like, it's the only time in my life I've ever, like, jumped out of a moving car, you know. And, and we literally, yeah, it was, fortunately, it was winter. So, like, there's, like, snow banks and stuff on the side of the road. But, but um, and we're wearing heavy clothes, so we weren't completely demolished by, by this. But I just, I just, I was on the side of, like, the side of the road. I opened up the door threw myself out and was pulling the drunk American. And meanwhile, the, the interpreter is like pushing him. Like we just like all flung ourselves out of the car. Oh my and, God. and yeah, fortunately the car drove off. You know, like they, they didn't come back. Like we're just wondering like, are they going to come back? But, um, but it was just like, okay, that would not have, I don't know what would have happened, but that would not have ended well. You know? Oh my God. And, yeah, and then um, and, and then the, the interpreter found us another car. Yeah, um, and I and as we're driving back into the city, it ended up being a more civilized drive. And I, I was asking him, um, like, "Can I get your business card? I'd love to take you guys out for dinner." Yeah, you know, like this, mm-hmm. this has been so great. And he's like, "You don't need to know who we are." <laughs> so like, I have no idea who that American businessman was, you know, that I was with. Um, but it was just someone who probably was a lot higher profile than would have wanted to admit who he was. <laughs> so that is interesting. Yeah, like that's that speaks to the we're dealing with exchanges that you should know nothing about. Young, sweet consultant. Oh my god, mm-hmm. I. Um, 
I've had a couple of moments like that. Uh, you know, I've hitchhiked in Africa where, you know, in places where you shouldn't. And uh, I've had been in situations where it's like, oh my God, like this is how I'm going to go out, you know? And um, I won't, I don't want to waste time on the podcast telling you about the specifics of that, but there's something, you know, when you're in those situations and then somehow there's an out or there's some way that, that you um, are able to like not end up a statistic, you know, and it's either through providence of someone else or exactly what you do, you know, you physically do something yeah, extreme. Yeah. yeah, Because I, because I think, I think that the, the biggest thing, um, and this gets into my, the, the story about me being assaulted on the street, but it's, the hardest thing for I think people who live in a civilized society to do is whenever they're under attack is to register you're under attack. Yeah, you know, like because it's like this is not this is not my life, and so it's you've got to make a decision very. Yeah, quickly. you have to very quickly assess the situation, and <laughs> almost before it gets dangerous, you have to read the signs and be able to go. This is not a good situation, and yes. you know immediately start looking for the out. And I think um, I think both you and I, you know, it's that early recognizing of like, this is a fucked up situation. And Mm -hmm. what, what is the, what are my options immediately? And then being prepared to implement them when the time is right, you know, like, and I think you're right. I think, and and again, I think this comes back to a major theme too. Like there's a lot of um, people that are being, you know, sort of forced into positions of comfort or restricted movement and access and like and i feel like you know we will lose those innate abilities Mm -hmm. for that which will also again contribute you know more to being easily more easily controlled because you've had no experience of getting yourself out of any dangerous situations exactly yeah so so um so yeah like the big the big story of my time in russia uh regarding violence is whenever i was assaulted on the street and the and this is this is i mean a lot of people so I'll just I'll just take you through what happened there, where um, I was walking to a friend's house for dinner. Um, I'd never been to his house before. It was like a group party. It was a, a bunch of people were going to get there. Um, I had instructions for where he lived. He, he lived just it was just a couple blocks away from my place. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to walk there. Um, but it's at night. It's in the winter. So it's dark, you know, it's, it's, it's dark and there isn't really great street lighting. Um, there isn't great signage. You know, so I'm, I'm trying to find this apartment building. I'm just like wandering around, you know, doing like the, I can't, I know it's around here somewhere sort of thing. And of course this is pre Google maps, pre like all the things that you and I take for granted of, I, mm-hmm. I've never been there before. I'm going to look it up. So, so I knew it was in the right place, um, but I'm wandering around and I'm walking to this um, courtyard and I'm trying to walk up to the front door of this particular apartment building. And there's three guys that are smoking. Yeah. You know, just, you know, as three guys do just sitting there smoking, hanging out. And I walk through them to get to the front door. And as, and again, I'm, this is winter. I'm wearing a big, heavy coat. I'm wearing a scarf, you know, like all the things that you wear. So you're not obviously American to them. You're just. No, uh, oh, that's a good point. Like I'm wearing a very Russian coat. Yes. Yeah, like I wore, mm-hmm. I'm wearing a coat that I bought at the local market. So this mm-hmm. is, this is not, you know, this is not screaming like America wearing Patagonia gear. Yeah. Sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, so, I, um, but anyway, so as I walk past them, like, I was grabbed by the scarf from behind. Um, yeah. And just, uh, and it took me a second to realize what's going on. I'm like, like, uh, did I trip? You know, like what happened? And then it's so, like, the guys just 
like dragged me by the neck you know, behind you know, like behind a, like a shed in the building just like get me out of like the main traffic and it's like what the fuck is going yeah like and you know, sorry for using explicatives but i think it's no, appropriate we're all about it here <laughs> we swear uh-huh. It's appropriate, but but yeah, it's like it, uh, so I'm being essentially strangled from behind. Uh, from what the one guy's strangling me, another guy's pinning my arms, a third one is in my face, um, and I'm just and they were going through my pockets, like looking for money, looking for whatever. And this is me being, uh, as I think you've figured out by now, I'm not the smartest person sometimes. Um, and I'm <laughs> and I'm carrying a, a bag, like a shopping bag, full of cans of beer and i'm here like whack trying to whack the guy in front of me <laughs> beer, like as if this is going to make a big difference <laughs> oh my God. but it's like all all i can you know like, I'm, I'm again people talk about fight or flight and i i naturally i think go into fight mode um so i, I was in fight mode and i'm I, a and I'm fighter like, i leave i run <laughs> I was just like, I just, I've got to, got to figure it. So, so the guy's, the guy's strangling me. Um, one's pinning me, and the guy in my face is like, yeah. He, and I was carrying no money on me. Like I'm, I'm going to a friend's house for dinner. Like this is, yeah. this is not. I have no money on me. Yeah. And they were, um, I, 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 I think I may have had just a little bit, but I, I did not have any significant amount of money. Um, and, but I did have business cards. Yeah. So they, they, they took all my money and they took my business cards. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then they started going downhill. We were like, okay, that's all the, they were sort of disappointed with how much money I had. Um, and then they started groping me and it just started, it started getting uh. really, 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 really scary, really, really fast. Um, and then again, as I said, they were disappointed. They didn't get much money. Then they looked at my earrings um, and I was wearing like, probably $10 cubic zirconia earrings. Uh, but they were thinking like in with the no light, they're like, she's got diamond earrings, you know? And, oh and, and so like, and they're, and so they, they actually started to take their hands off of me looking at my earrings. And so at a certain moment, like there were no hands on me and I just ran, <laughs> I just, I just ran. Um, and so where this takes an amazing turn is that, right across the street was a Vietnam embassy. Um, and oh so, my gosh. Which is just like of all fortunate things. And yeah, I, and the embassy of course has its embassy guards out front. And so I just, and what was even crazier is that the local police um, guys had just, were just chit-chatting with the embassy guards. Yeah, so there's, there's actually a police car there of some police guys talking with the embassy guards. I mean, like of all crazy coincidences. That's some dumb luck there, yeah. yeah so I just ran sprinting up to them. I'm just like, I just was attacked by three guys in the courtyard here. Um, and yeah, my Russian yeah was very much business um, conversation approach. Not I, like this is, I'm going to some terminology that's not really what I talk about on a daily basis, <laughs> but I was able, <laughs> able to get through to them. Yeah. What was going on? Um, and the, um, yeah. And the police uh, immediately leaped into action, you know, like to their eternal credit. And, and like some of them took off on foot after the guys and some of them threw me into the, their police car to like follow them. Mm-hmm. And it was, it just turned into like, okay, as if this night can't get even more crazy. <laughs> you know? And so I'm in the back of this police car that smells like vomit, yeah, because I'm sure I don't even know what sort of characters that have mm-hmm. been in the back of this police car. And then on the radio is um, the Beatles' "Yellow Submarine," you know? <laughs> <laughs> which is just like I'm just like, okay, this is just like a very strange trip I'm on right now. 
<laughs> a very strange trip. But just, yeah, it's uh, and yeah, I won't, I won't, yeah, I, I won't carry on for more on this one. But I, but for those, you know, this is a plug for my book there. So if you want to know what happens from there, like a, the crazy <laughs> <Absolutely>. thing, like <laughs> the, the crazy thing about this particular scene is that. Um, as I have said before, many, many people were attacked or subject to violence in Russia. To my knowledge, I was the only American where they actually caught the guys and it went to trial. And I actually ended up being, I ended up testifying in the trial, which was its own circus. <laughs> yeah. Wow, was, yeah. yeah. And so, um, yeah, so anyway, I'm, I'm not going to yeah, go, go read the book for what happened in the trial and what happened at the police station. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely great stories. Yeah. So anyway. Um, so I want to come forward now. So um, with the current conflict, I want you to sort of speak about it in relation to how you understood Russian history and observed the culture at the time. Um, what is it that you notice about what's happening now um, that relates to your experience? It might help people understand a little bit more about, you know, oh my God, why did this happen? Um, et cetera. I would think people be yeah, interested. Yeah, and, and just um, can I state t- today's date is the 3rd of April, 2022. It's yes. this recording because we have no idea what's going to happen from now, <laughs> but, but certain <laughs> things have played out in the Ukraine-Russian conflict. Um, so, a lot of what I've said to date, I think, so far in this conversation, I think you can then start to draw conclusions about what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. So in the Russians who are engaged in the conflict, it's a job for them. It's a job. They And also Russian, Russian uh, military are conscript, conscriptions. This is not a voluntary military like you have in the in a lot of Western countries. Like everyone who's there, and it's it's a requirement. Every every man in Russia is required to spend, and I, I honestly don't know the term of service, but it's a period of time that they are required by law to be um, to be in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that's a whole conversation on its own. But just to just to sort of like lay out what's going on. So these are guys who um, who are on a job it's a command and control environment yeah where you do what you're told yeah you Mm -hmm. do what you're told Um, and so i think we've all heard stories about like the the russians who have been captured have said that they didn't even know that there was an invasion of ukraine happening they thought that they were on training exercises so Mm -hmm. so they're they're very much just like in the dark about what's actually going on and they're just doing what they're told Mm -hmm. and and meanwhile, you've got the Ukrainians who this is not a job. This is real. Like this is this is yeah. Yeah, this is personal. You know, this is my home. Um, and mm-hmm. so and as I think I've noted before, like people in their personal lives in Russia are very resourceful. Like they're, they're very, like you're dealing with a lot of chaos going on and you're going to figure it out and you're going to get through it. So you have, you've got really two completely different mindsets of mm-hmm. you know, what's going on. And of course I'm making huge generalizations here, but you can also see that this is what's playing out as far in the Russian conflict is that you know, the Ukrainians know that the Russians are in a command and control. They are super focused on taking out the generals, on taking out the field officers. And yeah. so and so they are super focused on, we're going to do that. And then, then it turns into complete chaos on the Russian side because you don't have someone, they don't, they're not sort of like, figuring things out of like, okay, what should we do next? It's just, it just turns, a, it turns into a bit, a bit chaos. 
Mm. Whereas again, the the Ukrainians are super motivated. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's really. So well, I think this, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, I think that's really important distinction at like the operational level of war, right? And even I think, um, you know, just just the reasoning behind the invasion, right? Like I feel there's a lot of. Um, it's not like. Uh, and again, like, I feel like I'm oversimplifying what an average view of Russia may be. But my uh, my assumption, a little bit of an assumption is that the narrative came out like, oh, the Cold War's over. We're good friends now. We invest in their businesses. They're successful. Oh, my God, what? They've just totally, like, done this crazy invasion thing. Like, um, and I think it's a fundamental lack of understanding of um, the Russian psyche the pride of Russia, um, you know, the, the cost they felt to them of the, of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, um, you know, it's not just like uh, an evil dictator being unstable. And, you know, he basically has an agenda that's based in history of what happened to the Soviet Union. And you're actually naming something really important there, which is um, – Putin is not the only person in Russia saying let's invade Ukraine. He's not the mm. only person. Yeah, mm. I'm, not, I'm not saying the majority of Russians are, um, but it's there's definitely uh, like w- when I was in Russia, it's clear that the Russians are very proud people. Mm-hmm. And I say this in a I say this in a complimentary way. You know, yes, it's, in, uh, in that and like they're very proud of their history. They're very they're very much um, like. And for better or for worse, there's a lot of pride looking back at World War II of, you know, look at the siege of Kaliningrad and how we we fought off the, yeah, the Germans. Look at the siege of Leningrad. We went through hell and we fought off the Germans. And and so, you know, th- th- there's that memory. And, and when I was in Russia, it was a living memory. There are people who really had been through those sieges mm-hmm. that were still living at the time. So it was very much a... Um, there's there's a pride in like we are strong we have we will we are, we're a strong country we we beat off napoleon napoleon tried to invade yeah like he even napoleon wasn't successful in invade in taking over russia mm-hmm. uh, so there there is that fierce fierce pride and when the soviet union collapsed like a lot of this um a lot of what the fierce pride yeah, for better or worse, had been built around of you know the the, the May Day you know, um, parades through Red Square and whatnot. It's like okay, uh, now what? <laughs> and, yeah, and you have to and then um, and Putin I think has sort of tapped into you know, that energy whether whether for better or for worse. And I mean I think we can probably say for worse, but but um, of of just like let's tap into that fierce national pride and uh, and you. Know, use that as you know, we need to make this you know, con- you know rebuild after the soviet union collapsed there was this exposure of russian as a russia's economy completely collapsed and mm-hmm. th- their uh, their gdp completely collapsed and uh, and suddenly russia went from being this feared superpower to like what the heck is going on over there um mm-hmm. and and that was again really demoralizing for a lot of russians of like we're used to being like the superpower we're re- you're used to being like on the world stage and that's a lot of what what putin's tapped into is 
I think one of the big goals that he has is to be taken seriously on the world stage. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's, and so it's, and yes, he's, he's a naughty boy with, with very scary nuclear weapons, <laughs> but, <laughs> but because he's got the very scary nuclear weapons is why he's taken seriously on the world stage. Yeah. Well, and again, you know, think about it. Like what if all of a sudden we lost our superpower status, right? And, you know, you've had generations of people being brought up saying that, you know, learn or believing that the U.S. is the greatest country in the world. Like that's a, that's a that's a large part of the narrative. You know, so imagine all of a sudden you're no longer in that discussion. You know, mm-hmm. it's very easy to tap into that pride or that yeah. um, memory of what that used to feel like and, and galvanize people behind your cause you know, even though it is aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're exactly right because it, it's like every culture has a narrative that unites it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what happens when the foundation of that narrative is challenged, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, which is a much bigger conversation. When we're talking about. We, we don't yeah. have time to, we should do it. We'll do a part two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or part season two. Very interesting conversation of like, and I'm definitely not an expert on this, but there's plenty of experts mm-hmm. out there on mythology and like what unites a nation. But yeah, if, and I think that's a lot of what's yeah, happening in, in Putin's Russia is, is that there's been this mythology. It's united the country for so long. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, okay, you know, how, how do we move forward? <laughs> how do I move forward? And how do I make my mark in history as, you know, yeah. putting yeah. it back together? All right. I think that's excellent dialogue on that. Um, one more question on Russia before we close up. Um, are there things that you miss about the Russian culture? So um, I think you probably ha- are guessing by now what, what I'm going to answer because, uh, and it goes back to some of the themes of what we've been talking about. I think probably the thing which I miss most about living in Russia and, and hanging out with the Russians is just how resourceful people can be and how, mm-hmm. and how um, it's like not taking no and saying, Oh no. Yeah. Uh, but it's like, no, I'm going to figure it out. You know, like you're telling me no, but I'm going to figure it out. And that's just something which I think Americans have a lot to learn from. And a lot of other mm-hmm. people have a lot to learn from where, and like, I'll just give you a, a, like an, a couple of examples on that. Um, like when I was, when I was in Moscow, um, there is a lot of theft of manhole covers because, <laughs> because of like people were making money off of selling the metal. <laughs> so there was a lot of open manhole covers and then combined with the fact that there's not a lot of street lighting. So now and there's a lot of drinking. <laughs> and there's a lot of drinking. So now let's, now let's think through what this means. <laughs> and uh, so, so the, the, the American Medical Center said that, um, and there's a whole other reason why I was at the American Medical Center, which is in my book, uh, but I, I was just chatting with them at the front desk there um, when I was there with, you know, it was another friend that was being treated. And they told me that one of the leading causes of broken legs in the city is people stumbling into open manhole covers. <laughs> you know? So and, yeah, I'm sure that uh, Americans are listening to this with complete horror yeah, as <laughs> just going, someone will be sued over that. Whereas nope. <laughs> in, in Russia, if you were to fall in an open manhole cover, it's just pretty much like you're an idiot. Like, you, you know, there's open manhole covers out there and <laughs> it's like, and no street lights. And, and, and you've been yes. drinking, so it's self-inflicted. <laughs> so I think I think that's probably like 
that's probably like a, a summary. Like that's one, that's one of the things that I totally missed. And then it, it's, it's also like, uh, I think I've also noted like the, the standard of living, it was pretty, pretty hard you know, for the average person. It was pretty hard, but there was very little, like there, there was very little of a, poor little me attitude on mm-hmm. things, which, you know, which is like Americans who don't have the latest iPhone are like, Oh, poor me. I'm, I'm I, yeah, like oh, for struggling. Yeah. <laughs> Crying out loud. And like one of my favorite scenes um, on this, on this thing is like, I was taking the bus um, uh, one day and there is this gypsy family that gets onto the bus. Um, and the, and I'm saying gypsy quite literally, like these are, these are gypsies that are coming from Romania that would come yet yeah, that would be yeah, begging in the streets. And they would be very de- deliberately yeah, putting all their kids, you know, unwashed on the, on the bus and, and begging for money. And they they'd always have this monologue of, I've got a difficult life. I have these 17 <laughs> children or yeah. you know, whatever it is. And, um, and uh, yeah. And can you spare a couple of Kopecks and, and almost invariably, there'd be some, and it's usually a babushka, usually an older woman who would shout back, we've all got difficult lives. Deal with <laughs> you know? Get a grip, Karen. Like. <laughs> like, Go get him. You know? and, and, and of course I was much more privileged. I, was, I wasn't going to be the one speaking that out, but yeah, I was just like, yeah. Go get him. Like, you're, you're like, we've all got difficult lives here. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's right. I think that's just something that for people to reflect on is, is like, yeah, just pull your, pull your crap together and get on with it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. It's hilarious because I think like a lot of that narrative still goes on in America, but like people don't really take that to heart. Like they really feel like they're being completely, you know, suffering if, um, if they don't get the latest phone or, you know, um, I'm driving around my $70,000 tank, but I can't afford to fill up the, like, you know, just, like no idea of like real sacrifice, I think would be the the thing there. And, and to and not to just like beat a theme, but travel people. <laughs> I actually, um, I have a very good friend. You know him. I'm not going to mention him by name. Who does? Who's a psychologist? And um, you know, would regularly counsel uh, children of the extreme wealthy. You know, and um, one of the things there is because of the privilege, you know, the expectation of what they deserve in not only like a summer job or whatever is very high. And you have these incredibly depressed teens. And I said, look, no disrespect to you. And as a psychologist, because I know you're amazing, but couldn't you just send them to go live with the family in the gutters in India for like a month? And then they would get a little bit of perspective. (laughs) I just like, you know, come on, man, like pull yourself together. All right. Well, look, um, just one final question that I always ask everyone um, is what is your favorite memory of our friendship? And I will say the same. So we'll see if we're going to say the same thing because I think it falls on the theme of what we're talking about here. Yes. <laughs> and mind you, like to the audience, we did not prepare what our answers are going to be. So we'll see if Val and I come back with the same same item. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the uh, so my my favorite thing was that when we were working together at Visa, uh, we did um, some amazing travel together, <laughs> which I think we refer to as the amazing race, where we went. Um, <laughs> San Francisco to uh, to Sao Paulo, Brazil, to Singapore, and um, London as well. 
uh, yeah, but that was one trip, and then we went to London separately. So oh, we, right, literally, yes. we literally did the amazing race, and then we then we went back to London. So so we went to Sao Paulo, Brazil, to do some some training. You know, and uh, that's a whole separate story. But uh, <laughs> but we arrived. We had the miracle of arriving in Sao Paulo um, when when the world cup was getting underway between um, and it, and it was Brazil and Ivory coast was the first match. And we're just like, we're in Brazil for the world cup for a Brazil world cup game. We've got to see this match, like with yeah. the people, with the people. And so, um, and yeah, and as, as I was driving in from the airport in the taxi, like, I, yeah, I'm just like, I'm like the, the dog looking out the window and like paying it, like, what's that? What's that? What's that? Like watching everything. <laughs> And I saw some pretty interesting neighborhoods. Yeah, as, yeah, and I didn't know how far we were from the hotel. But I was like, really, just when I when I get to a new city, I'm li- really trying to pay attention to, like, driving to the hotel or wherever I'm going, just so that I can go back and visit something if something looked interesting. Yeah, on my drive in. And so as I was driving in, um, there were some really interesting looking neighborhoods, yeah, like the like local barrios and whatnot that just looked pretty vibrant. Um, and so I sort of like had that in the back of my mind. You and I, it, we, we talked with our, we we're just like, oh, well, we'll talk with the hotel concierge because they know what's going on. So we asked them like, like what what's some good ideas for how to see the World Cup? Um, and they tried to sell us tickets to this outrageously expensive event at some club. You know, I'm just like, no, that's, that that's was not after it. they first said you can watch the game on television in your room. That was the first. Oh my God. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had totally forgotten that bit, but it's like, and they're like, no, you're not getting it. Like we want the real experience of watching the world cup in a, in a pub in your, whatever the equivalent is in, in Sao Paulo, Brazil with real Brazilian world cup fans. Um, And and this guy was helpless. And I'm just like, look, Val, I saw this barrio. Like, I don't think it's too far away. We're going to go there. Um, And you're like, I'm all in. (laughs) And and it was, it was the best. Yeah. It was just go in the direction of the noise and like you just had it handled. And we walked through probably, I think, which was not an incredibly safe neighborhood, but because it was world cup, like no one was out. Like it was like, yeah, there was no one on the street. Like everyone was into the, into the game. Yeah. And it was such a great day. Um, we, we got to like, honestly like the perfect place to watch world cup it was exactly what we wanted it was exactly like the real people watching the real world cup no one spoke english which is totally fine i mean i'm not expecting the brazilian to speak english we had no idea what's going on on the menu we're just like randomly pointing at things although i will say that (laughs) you gave some very sound advice that day about menus which i thought makes perfect sense and i've used many times to the day so obviously menu is completely in brazilian there's no english speakers you know nothing and so Phaedra said to me, she goes, you know what? In these circumstances, she goes, I just point to something at the top of the menu. They're never going to put the crap food at the top of the menu. And she, <laughs> <laughs> and she was right. That's exactly what we did. That's exactly yeah, and we, we had did. no idea what it was, but it was, it was great. <laughs> well, you know, when I think about, I had three that tied for first place. And um, this was definitely one of those stories. Um, the, the other part about this story that I loved, uh, which I'll is that I was working for a startup, so I could choose who I wanted to fly with. I had a better budget. I just had all around better everything. Phaedra was coming from the visa travel situation, which had, you know, very prescriptive um, 
carriers and suppliers. And um, she was trying to explain to a visa executive because they, they wanted her to do some crazy thing where she backtracked and did some presentation in Miami in the past. Like, basically, that's what was going to have to happen. It was like, on your way from Sao Paulo to Singapore, can you stop by Miami? (laughs) (laughs) And and I'm, like, pulling out, like, a world map trying to explain this is not actually possible. And time zones and basically saying... You're asking me to come see you in, uh, you know, in the past. In the past. <laughs> I can't bend the space time continue. And like this executive was like, I don't care. This is your problem. Just oh, and it showed up my performance review too. It showed up my performance yeah. review that I was being uncooperative. <laughs> it was like, like, because I could not bend the space time continuum to draw. And you were off. like, listen, I've done Arthur Anderson in Russia. I know what uncooperative means. You can't face me. <laughs> I think yeah. So that was that was one of them. But but if, but essentially, it was a big junket um, around the world, and it was spectacular. I think by the time you met me in Singapore, I think I'd had a spa. I'd been at the pool for a while. I had the pictures of um, Singapore slings. I was ready for you. And, and uh, with visas, travel policies, I had three back to back long hauls with United. So I had I had Sao Paulo. <laughs> Sao Paulo to Chicago, Chicago to Tokyo, Tokyo to Singapore. And by the time I arrived, this is due to visas travel policies. I am not that stupid to have built that route myself. (laughs) When you showed me your itinerary, your flight was like, I don't know, 35, 40 hours. I was like, okay, well, I'll see you there. (laughs) I was in transit 38 hours. I was a a train wreck by the time I got to. Oh, my God. But I took care of you. I sussed everything out. Yeah. We had, I think it was a $200 bar bill yeah, at the, at the Easily. pool in Easily. Singapore. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, again, this isn't all about alcohol on your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. The other favorite memory, all of, all of my favorite memories of you involved travel. Um, the second one was the bike trip that we did. So basically yeah. we both reached a point of exhaustion uh, with visa ending in Phaedra, you know, left visa. I basically said, I want to go back to Australia. I'm done. And, um, but before that, we decided that we needed a, um, a bike touring trip, which we did. And it was, I think we crossed the continental divide like three times. And I had been, I had been on a very strict health program of wine and cheese, which (laughs) if you've ever tried that program, you understand that when it comes to then when you're going to physically exercise again, it's, um, it's not very conducive to that, but I will say that uh, I did. I did end up with the yellow jersey on one day. So, so yeah. cycling has always been very good for the fitness. But we had a we had a fantastic time cycling through the Rockies, and then of course the most recent trip was our 2017 trip to Peru, yes, which um, was incredible. So we did the less uh, we took the path less traveled, and we did the Salcante route through to uh, Machu Picchu. So it's very different than the Inca Trail. Yes, it, it was the right choice. It was definitely it was the right absolutely choice. the right choice. But when we turned up on the briefing, we were older than everybody else by a good 30 years, I think. And we were with, I'm not kidding, semi-professional no, athletes, like infant yes. athletes, semi-professional. They all like played soccer, did stuff. And pro, we were, soccer. Pro, soccer. pro soccer, pro soccer, and we were like, I was like, is this the? Are we in the right group? And even our guide was like, I don't know if these ladies are going to make it. And I'm telling you right now, we were never more than ten or fifteen minutes behind them. The pro we were, soccer players, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 
I mean, when we got to camp at night, they carried on playing soccer and jumping around, and we did yoga and almost went straight to bed. But we did, we did outshine them in the drinking games the one night. Not that it's all about drinking, but we showed them our stamina. Oh yeah, we, we're experienced. We're experienced. That's right. We know we know how to do these things. Um, and then I think the final of that trip was was actually so. This track lands you in Machu Picchu Village, so you still. Um, but the benefit was you could take a bus and get up to actual Machu Picchu and spend six right. hours there. Whereas if you do the Inca Trail, you only get three hours there. So we right. did the best thing. But we're in the queue for the bus. It's 5 a.m. because we wanted 3 to get up there. Also, it was 3 a.m. Like, we had to wake up at 3 a.m., didn't we? Yeah, yeah. We were queuing, I think, by 4 a.m. And 4 anyway, we're supposed to have our whole group of the infant athletes and everybody with us. And we're, we're there. And we, and the, we had had dinner with the athletes prior and we knew they were in for a big night. Like they were all in for a big they night. Were up. They, were, they, were they were revved up. And we're like, we're going to bed because we have to get up at 3 a.m. So we're standing because the and, of the trip is we're going to Machu Picchu. Right? That's the whole point of the whole trip. Like, <laughs> yeah. even though we did this amazing thing, obviously you want to spend as much time in Machu Picchu. And so we're waiting there for our guide and fellow uh, groupies. And uh, there's someone <laughs> crossing the road in like a little tiny waist towel. And I think Phaedra was like, is that one of our, I think that's one of our, and I'm like, oh my God, it is. And one, there were many stories that emerged from the night before, but this particular individual ended up in a broom closet with no clothes and he doesn't know where they were. And he was basically going back to his room. And when we realized this. In a broom closet, not in his hotel, in a different hotel. Yeah, in a totally different <laughs> hotel. Exactly. <laughs> so none of our group was ready they were all just getting home from the night before and we were pissed because we were like you know your parents paid for this you stupid pay-. anyway no just kidding but um the guy finally came to us and he said you guys better just go and get started he goes i have to wrangle these people i have to round them up and get them up there and i think by the time they got up there which was like three hours later we'd already yeah. done our own wandering around and like that I think was good when we just were wandering around just the two of us without yeah. the tour. That was, that was yeah. the best. But those that are was, my favorite memories of our but, but yeah, I, I just, I have to agree. Like the, the fact that uh, it wasn't like it, the night before was alcohol free, but we were, we were responsible. We were and responsible. Like, like we, yeah, this is not our first rodeo. We know what to do um, <laughs> because like the whole point of, I mean, the, well, point one of going to Peru was to hang out with you. And point two was to, uh, we wanted to visit Machu Picchu. And the right way to visit Machu Picchu, and this is an ad for Machu Picchu Tourism Society, you need to be there at dawn. You know, like you need to be there at dawn. You need to be in the line at three, four in the morning to get yeah. on the bus. Yeah. Uh, and because like 6 a.m. Yeah, it's when I think the doors open and mm-hmm. you've got to be there at 6 a.m. Because it's magical. It's magical. It's magical. It's just magical at dawn. And yeah. Um, so anyway, we need to figure out our next trip, Val. Like that was, yes. that was a fantastic one. So that I oh, think that, so good. that's going to so be um, uh, our, we'll, we'll file a report with your podcast after our next trip. <laughs> Definitely. And I think we need to start thinking of some things, but I just want to say, um, look, this has been, you know, some of the longest discussions, but I just find this whole experience so fascinating and your whole story. And so again, I would recommend to anyone looking for an excellent read, uh, Vodka Diplomacy by Phaedra Fisher on Amazon. Uh, So Phaedra is spelled P-H-A-E-D-R-A. It's not a common name. And then Fisher like Fisher. 
So look or for you the can search on vodka diplomacy. <laughs> or you can just search on vodka diplomacy. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, find on Amazon. And um, and yeah, thank thank you, Val, for the plug. And also, I'd really encourage people if you enjoy the book, please leave a review. And if you mm-hmm. don't enjoy the book, please just pass it on to someone else who hopefully does enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. And so, my dear friend, you obviously qualify for a rad person in my life. Love you to bits. Till next time. Do you ever wonder why you don't hear of many women classical composers? We are the female box, Beethoven's, Mozart's. Next week, we talk to Dr. Susan Pickett, a woman who single-handedly uncovered some of the most incredible compositions that were composed by women and left to die in the Library of Congress. Yeah.